it won't come as any shock to you if I tell you that the grand theme of the New Testament, indeed the grand theme of the whole Bible, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, the New Testament begins with four gospel records of his life and ministry. And he is the object, the grand object of those four gospels. Matthew, Mark and Luke and John, each of these evangelistic writers portray Jesus in slightly different ways, uh, recording between them various events in Christ's life. Each of them shed a certain light on Christ, which perhaps is not always quite so bright in the other Gospels. And together, of course, they, they provide us with this wonderful overview uh, and clear record of the life and teaching of the Lord Jesus. They all do so in their own style. Uh, they do so with slightly different perspectives. In Matthew, we see Jesus as the sovereign who comes to rule and to reign, the great king. In Mark, Jesus is portrayed much more as the servant, the one who comes to serve and to suffer. In Luke, Jesus is presented as the son of man who comes to share and to sympathize with sinners. And in John, Jesus there is clearly portrayed as the son of God, the one who come, has come to reveal God and make God known and to redeem his people. Various contrasts. He is sovereign and he is servant. He's the son of man and he's the Son of God. Great extremes and opposites found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and Matthew's root in the opening chapters of his gospel as he introduces us to Jesus as the promised Christ, he establishes certain key truths that we've seen already in the opening uh, one and a half chapters the legitimacy of Jesus in terms of his ancestry by means of the genealogy that he provides in the opening 17 verses, the miraculous and divine conception of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit in chapter 1 verse 20, Christ's concern in coming into the world, he came for his people, verse 21, but also the purpose for his coming to save his people from their sins. His true identity as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We've seen that in verses 22 and 23 of chapter 1, and that theme continues in chapter 2. His definite and actual birth as a baby, chapter 1, verse 25. And his being acknowledged as king of the Jews by the wise men, in the opening verses of chapter 2. And as Matthew's account of Christ's early years continues, he brings to us a number of details about what happened in the story which only are found in Matthew's account. And first of all, we discover that this newborn infant, now probably a young toddler, 
somewhere between maybe 12 and 18 months of age um, when the wise men visited. He's now the persecuted baby. Persecuted baby. It's not something you expect to be the experience of a baby or a young child. But that was Christ's experience, even at that very young and tender age. You're probably thinking it takes a particularly depraved and unhinged mind for an adult to determine to kill a toddler because that toddler is a threat. Such was Herod's mind. And such is the extent of evil in this fallen world in which we live that a man could think such a thing of an infant. And we see in these verses why it is that Herod inquired of the wise men when it was that they had seen the star. Herod was searching for clues to try and identify this child, not so that he could worship, but so that he could eliminate the threat before it went any further. And I believe there are some very helpful lessons for us to see in these verses that Matthew records for us from verse 13. We see, first of all, that Herod's plans are fully open to God and they are fully known to God. Now, we saw that in verse 12 as the wise men were warned by God that they should return another way. And then the angel appears to Joseph in a dream and lets him know that this baby uh, is under threat of its life. Herod's plans are fully open and known to God. I quoted the other week Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. There's great comfort here for the Christian and a great encouragement to you that you can fully trust in God. Whenever Satan rouses himself against the Lord's people and in whatever form that may take, and regardless of whom it might be that Satan is using against us, everything is seen and known to God. In this sense, God is for us our great and eternal and infinite sentinel. All-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful. Nothing is hidden from him. Nothing escapes him and nothing can be unless he permits it to be so. What rest there is for our souls in these verses if we'll permit our hearts and our minds to settle themselves on this great truth that God is seeing and knowing all things. Recently on the news I heard of some men who've been found guilty and sentenced for plotting terrorist attacks but those attacks were foiled they'd been under surveillance they'd been watched their communications had been intercepted the security services were following their every move and before they had chance to execute the plot the police moved in and they were arrested 
our great God in heaven. The one whom the psalmist in Psalm 2 says laughs at the schemes of men. He's watching. And this is why he calls you to walk not according to what you can see, but to trust in him. Because he's the one who sees all things. And he's the one who knows all things. And so why try to walk by your sight when you can walk by faith in him? He's watching over all things. So trust him. Secondly, we see that God can use difficult and even frightening circumstances in order to direct us. God can and does use many things in the world that he has made in order to fulfill his own purposes. And that includes the plans and schemes of wicked men. There's a prophecy which requires that Jesus come from Egypt. We'll come on to that in a moment. He's already in Judea. He's in Bethlehem, which is only a few miles from Jerusalem. Surely that's good enough. He's, he's where God needs him to be, surely. Ah, but there is a prophecy that needs to be fulfilled if this Jesus is God's true Messiah. How to get Jesus from Bethlehem to Egypt so that he can come out of Egypt? Well, God could have used any number of things, but here God uses the very real threat from Herod to drive Joseph and his family down into Egypt. Now, sometimes God gives us more grace so that we can just stand where we are. Sometimes God provides a way of escape. Whichever it is, you can be certain that whilst you will, you will sometimes wonder if you've lost the plot, you can be sure that God never has. Never. Trust in the Lord is the most important thing. As you listen to his word, as you pray, and even in the harshest of trials and difficulties, God is still leading, and God is still guiding, and still moving you to where he wants you to be. And another thing that is so obvious, but we must not allow things in the Bible to be so obvious that we never say them or state them. From his infancy, Jesus suffered persecution. Herod, of course, is horrified by the thought of a rival. He despised the idea of having to make himself subject to somebody else. The thought of someone being his king and lord caused him a great loathing which rose up within him. And the result in Herod... Well, it's easy and obvious. Do away with him. Let's be rid of this Jesus. And opposition and persecution, of course, would feature large in Christ's life 
and ministry. Now, of course, we don't know an awful lot about what happened in his life up to the age of 30. We have that one little insight that Luke gives us in his gospel. Uh, we're told that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and men at the end of chapter 2 of Luke's gospel. He records that one incident when Christ was 12 years of age, when they went down to Jerusalem. But other than that, those many other years in Christ's life are a complete mystery. But what we do know that even as a, even as a young child, Jesus knew what it was to suffer persecution. Now perhaps Herod cut him a tiny bit of slack. Uh, perhaps he could be forgiven slightly at this point, not having seen or heard of any of the things that Jesus would do or say. Perhaps largely being ignorant of who it was he was opposing. But of course even later there will be thousands upon thousands who would see and hear all that Jesus did and taught and yet even they would reject him and eventually they would cry out, crucify him. Christ's life would begin with severe opposition and severe opposition would bring his life to, a, to an end. From cradle to cross, Jesus knew opposition and persecution and suffering. Now when we think of Herod's response to Christ, the idea of having to make yourself subject to Jesus Christ is still despised today. The thought of him being king and lord causes great loathing to rise up in unbelievers still. Why? Well, if I have to make Christ Lord and Saviour and King of my life, that does not leave me free to do that which seems right in my own eyes. That does not leave me free to do that which feels right in my own heart. Being true to Jesus Christ on the one hand, or being true to myself on the other and most choose being true to themselves as they see it and to reject Christ in order that they can do it because you can't do both I wonder which of those two positions you're in this morning are you living your life seeking to be true only to yourself as the world defines it? Or are you seeking to live your life being true to Christ, which is to be a Christian? Well, for those who decide, no, I'm just going to live to be true to myself, the result is always the same. Away with Jesus. Let's be rid of him. And so opposition against Christ has continued ever since. And of course, in Christ's physical absence from the world today, it is you who love and follow him who become the targets next. And it's his church and it's his word, the Bible, which becomes the target. 
But keep in mind all the lessons we're learning here as we're reminded of the God who watches all things. The God who uses even the schemes of the wicked to fulfill his purposes. And the God who guides and directs and watches over his own even when they're going through times of great trial and hardship. For us, we need to remember, don't we, that the servant is not greater than the master. And you are servants of Christ, who himself came not to be served, but to serve. Bear troubles with that patience which endures, because this, says the Bible, is commendable before God. So we see that from the very, or virtually the moment from his birth, as soon as the shepherds have stopped worshipping and praising, then the kings will arrive and they will worship, but then it's persecution and opposition against Christ. But tremendous lessons for us to take heart from as those who are his people today. And then as Matthew continues, he talks about more prophecies which are fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. And Matthew is just hammering home for us the veracity of Christ in his identity. This truly is the one promised. This is the one that all Israel has been waiting for, who's come into the world. And there are two particular prophecies that Matthew makes mention of through to verse 18 that we read. Uh, The first is the result of what has become known as the flight into Egypt. Of course, that's, that's a term that's taken on a whole new meaning since people first used it. Um, of course, it wasn't a flight, as many people would assume it was today. You know, they didn't go to Tel Aviv Airport and drop down. Uh, it was this run, this escape. Get away! Go now! Joseph goes in the dead of night. Herod's men are on their way. And for Joseph to take Jesus of all places to Egypt is a remarkable twist in the story. If you knew nothing of it, it comes out of the blue really, doesn't it? Down to Egypt, why on earth would he go there? Well, the life of the infant, of course, is in great danger. God, by means of his angel, directs Joseph to flee south into Egypt. And it is a most curious choice of destination. Well, bearing in mind, of course, that this prophecy must also be fulfilled. What did Egypt mean and signify to any first century Jew? What might it still signify and mean to any uh, serious-minded Jew today? Well, Egypt immediately conjures up thoughts and images of tyranny and of bondage as slaves and abuse and mistreatment at the hand of their Egyptian masters. And of course the annual feast of Passover remembered and celebrated their deliverance out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses. In Jesus' day, whenever the Jerusalem Echo produced its top ten holiday destinations for any particular year, you can be absolutely sure Egypt did not feature on the list. That would not be a place that any serious-minded Jew would want to go. We, we don't go to Egypt. We remember what happened there. 
We don't have happy memories of Egypt. That doesn't conjure up the kind of things that we want to think about. That is not a paradise place to go to. But that's where the Lord sent Christ under the guidance of the angel as Joseph cared for him. For Joseph and Mary to take Jesus there must have seemed quite a bizarre solution and a great test of their faith. What a great man of faith this man Joseph was. We, he kind of gets overlooked. What remarkable faith this man had. To accept the message and believe the message as to how his young bride-to-be is pregnant. And then to care so dearly for this young child that he would even take his family down into Egypt. What great faith this man Joseph has in his God. Well, down to Egypt they go. At least there Christ will be safe, outside of his own country, and yet remarkably separated from the people he came to save. And we believe he spent several years down in Egypt. But of course, at the same time, we've seen, because Matthew mentions it, Every single aspect of Old Testament writing and prophecy must be fulfilled. And some of you will have a little marginal note in your Bible referring to Hosea and chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, when Hosea was writing, um, he was talking literally about the nation of Israel. But you often discover in the Old Testament that things that are said literally about real historical things that happened are also pictures in themselves of something greater to come and to be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Israel, of course, was the new name that God gave to Jacob. And the name means a prince with God. So that verse was speaking historically about the nation of Israel, but it's actually just a shadow of that true Israel, of the true prince with God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came up out of Egypt, just as God had said he would. And we remembered last week, didn't we, that he is Emmanuel, he is God with us. Jesus said, if you look and see him, you see in him the Father, because he is the true prince with God who has come to us, God with us. If you would know God, then you must know Jesus Christ. There is no other way to know God than to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you would come to God, the only way you can come to him is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's a, a second prophecy with which we conclude this morning. The massacre of the infants in Bethlehem and its surrounding area. And it's an awful thing that Herod did from which Jesus was spared. And that a man can sink into such a raid 
It was such a rage that he would go to these lengths. Well, it probably confounds even the hardest of hearts. And thanks to his common grace upon mankind, the vast majority of sinful men and women could never bring themselves to commit such a horrendous crime. But Herod is a wicked, evil man. And he's taking no chances. When, when did the wise men say that star appeared? Hmm. Well, let's round it up to two years just to make sure. And where was it that Micah said that this Messiah should be born? Bethlehem. Yeah. Well, let's just extend that a few miles around just to be certain that we get him. And you go and kill every male child two years and younger. And Rama, as quoted in Jeremiah 31, it was a, an area close by to Bethlehem. And Rama lay within that red circle that Herod had drawn on his map around Bethlehem. Just to make sure we get him. When Jeremiah wrote those words, he was making reference to an event that occurred in Rama at the time when Judah was led into captivity in Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. So again, the original words of Jeremiah were referring to a real historical event in his time. But it was also prophetic. And an even greater horror now falls on Rama. I discovered something this week that I'd never heard of Herod before. I knew he was a murderous man. He'd even murdered two of his own sons. But one of the other historians of his day records that he refused to kill a pig. Pig's an unclean animal. And the historian reflected upon the fact that it was probably better to be Herod's pig than it was to be one of his own sons. What man would want to have that recorded of him? But such was Herod. And this, this dreadful act occurs as the soldiers go out and fulfill his command. But at the same time, in a, an it's an astonishing providence that Jesus now is the only boy of that, of that generation who was born in Bethlehem, who survived. And so as this boy comes up out of Egypt, he truly is the only one who could be the boy at whose manger the shepherds worshipped. This boy, Jesus, coming out of Egypt, only he can be the one to whom the wise men came and gave their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. There can be no doubt that this boy who came back up out of Egypt with his mother and father is this promised one, born in the way that the, the word of God has recorded for us. 
It's an astonishing providence of God that that is now the case. We discover in these verses how this child who is the prince with God has a start in life which is millions of miles away from the cosseted and privileged upbringing of princes William and Harry and George and actually even of you and me. We see nothing but humiliation, threats, the fiercest opposition. We see him even as a young child, knowing what it is to be an outcast and a stranger. We also see the best attempts to do away with him coming to nothing as God triumphs. Even though he sometimes uses the most extraordinary and unexpected means and circumstances by which he achieves it. This young boy is hunted. He's despised. And this is the boy who will grow up to be the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Such was the path that he was prepared to walk in order that he might redeem you from all of your sins. Such is his father's love for his chosen people that he would send his only begotten son to walk that path for you. Some might read this story and think, hmm, not the best of beginnings. On the contrary, his life began as it would continue. His life began as it must continue. The one despised and rejected by men. For now his father is protecting and preserving him from harm. But one day he will be wounded for your transgressions. One day he will be bruised for your iniquities. The punishment for your sins upon him and by his stripes you have been healed. <clears throat>